Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 56, our key text today. Matthew 27, verse 45 and following. As we continue our series, Following Jesus, we are following in a harmony of the gospel fashion, step by step through Jesus' life, and now we get to Jesus' death. If you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you stand with me now? From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had been died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and uh, those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had gathered uh, and followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, and it's not easy. It's not easy for us to hear. It's not easy for us to consider. And so certainly we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would bring to our minds understanding and our hearts conviction. Father, whatever it is we need to know or do, or become today as a result of this scripture, would we be humble and obedient and filled with faith to follow you? We ask it in the name of Jesus, our crucified Savior. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. There's no way to make this easy. Crucifixion was gruesome. It's a brutal way to die, and in the case of Jesus being unjustly and wrongly convicted and sentenced to this death, it's even worse. Yet in God's sovereign plan, Jesus' death met a need that no one else could ever meet, to pay the the price for sins of everyone. Historians tell us, estimated, that at the time of Jesus' death, the Romans had crucified over 30 thousand people in Palestine alone. Crucifixion was common. 30,000 people. Now surely some of those others that were crucified had to have been crucified as innocent people. Surely some of those who were crucified, probably most of them, were crucified as insurrectionists, what Jesus was falsely accused of. But of the 30,000 that were crucified at the time of Jesus... Do we know the names of any of the others of them? 
Do any of them have 39 books that prophesied of their coming and 27 books that report of uh, their life? And an entire book, the Bible, that is known throughout the world as the number one bestseller of all times that never makes the New York Times bestseller list for some reason. From the beginning of humanity, the beginning of the Bible, the sin of Adam and Eve caused the fall of all their heirs, including you and I. But even from the beginning there in Genesis 3.15, right after their sin, it says... And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That man would crush the head of the serpent. It's prophesying in a veiled way that Jesus would crush Satan himself. And then in Genesis 22, in the story of Abraham offering Isaac to prove his faith to God that he might be a great nation, it said God provided a ram for the sacrifice instead of Isaac, a beautiful picture. God portrayed the necessity of shedding for the remission of sins. That the blood of animals paid for sins temporarily, but there would be one who would come, Jesus, whose blood would pay for the sins of all people of all times. As Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And your scripture of the month points you to a report from 1 Peter 3.18 in the New Testament summarizing Jesus' death. So let's say that together. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3.18. That's what Jesus did. That's who Jesus is. But as you come to your sermon outline that's in your worship folder this morning, and you've got blanks you can fill in there, the first point is this. The heaven's response to Jesus near death. As Jesus was approaching death, the heavens themselves had a response. Verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. What are they talking about? The Jewish estimation of time was beginning at roughly 6 a.m. when the sun came up. So the sixth hour is 12 noon. So from 12 noon until 3 p.m. approximately, darkness fell over the land. And not just any darkness. This was not twilight. This was pitch darkness is the idea of the Greek word used here. And so folks would be used to, as you and I are used to, that occasionally in our world and the astronomical phenomenon of an eclipse happens. But an eclipse generally lasts a short time, doesn't it? And we can see the eclipse coming as the moon begins to move over the sun And then we see the eclipse laning, but almost instantaneously darkness fell over the land. The other interesting thing to note about this is that word land there is not the word meaning land as in localized Palestine where Jesus was crucified. That word land means earth. Over the entire earth there was darkness. I don't think you'd be surprised to note that around the world at about the same time, 30 A.D.-ish, All cultures all around the world have record 
of an eclipse, most often the word they used because that's what they knew, that took place and brought total darkness in the middle of the day, but lasted longer than any known eclipse ever did. That all around the world, it's reported by historians who are keeping track, that the heavens responded to Jesus as he was about to die, and everyone knew that something was happening, whether they knew what it was or not. Our question is this, what's that mean? What does this mean? What's the significance of the fact that there's darkness Well, the Bible talks to us about that in the Old Testament. The prophets, Joel 2.2, refers to the day of the Lord as darkness and gloom and a day of clouds and thick darkness. Amos 5.20 says, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Zephaniah 1.14 and 15 says, Listen, the day of the Lord is darkness. Now that day of the Lord they're talking about is the last day, the day in which all of earth as we know it ends. And God sends Christ back to take his church out. And all of us face the judgment that our actions mean. But there's a double entendre there as there is in so many scriptures. That even here, this is a picture of judgment. These Old Testament passages that prophesy the ultimate judgment are foreshadowing in Jesus' uh, death here a judgment. For Jesus' judgment over death and sin by his death for all sins. The cross was a place of divine judgment. And the sins of the world were poured out on the sinless one to pay the price for those sins. So the heavens point to Jesus' death In a divinely miraculous way. But now we have a second miracle. The second miracle in verse 46. And that's the second point in your outline. And that point is the Lord's cry in nearing death. Now Jesus said a number of things on the cross. And we'll touch on those moving forward. But there's a miracle that happens here as well. About the ninth hour. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now did you see the miracle there? What was the miracle? That God who had been ever present with all creation, God who had been co-eternal with His Son, turned His back on His Son and had forsaken Him. For the first time ever, Jesus knew existence apart from God. Jesus knew at that moment, at that time, something that you and I have never known. Existence apart from God. It will only be an eternal judgment in hell that people will know existence apart from God. We have God ever present with us, whether we walk with him or not. He is present with us. He's eternal and he's present. But Jesus cries out, exclaiming that God's presence had left him. Now, he was quoting Psalm 22. And those who knew, those who were paying attention back in those days, would no doubt know to what he was referring, that God's presence was apart from him. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thine eyes, speaking of God, are too pure to look on evil. It's at that time that God had favor. That it says that God could not see Jesus at that time. That God had to turn his back on the sin that Jesus took on him on our behalf. And Jesus cried out in recognition of that horrible miracle. The Father forsook the sin for our 
or excuse me, the father forsook the son for our sins. Some scriptures you might want to write down here. Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered for our transgressions. He died for our sins is what that's saying. 1 Corinthians 15.3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, just as it was prophesied as what 1 Corinthians 15.3 is reporting. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you don't know this one, this one you need to memorize. 2 Corinthians 5.21, circle that maybe, put a box around it, a star, whatever you want to. It says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. For us, Christ Jesus took on sin. Galatians 3.13 said, he became a curse for us. 1 John 4.10 said, the propitiation of our sins, that's a fancy way for meaning the, the weight, the penalty of our sins was upon him. The mystery of this separation is far too deep for us to grasp. But what's easier to understand is what else he said from the cross. That's your question. Your question at this point is, what else did Jesus say from the cross? Now, at this time of darkness, the first thing that Jesus said is recorded in Luke 23, 34. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Speaking of those that were in the act of crucifying him. The second thing Jesus had said was to the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And if you'd like to know where these are at and study a little further, you can go to our website and on podcast and look back at those. I've preached on those most recently leading up to this point. And of course, on iTunes as well, you could subscribe or just read your Bible. The third thing to Mary, he said, here's your son. And to John, he said, here's your mother. That's in John 19, 26 or 27. I preached on that two weeks ago. And we'll get to the other things in a few moments. Jesus had seven different sayings or statements on the cross. And so we've seen four of them now and three to come. But these natural phenomena of the darkness and Jesus' words. And now a third thing to note. Third point on your outline this morning is the crowd's reaction to Jesus being near death. The crowd's reaction to Jesus being near death. Look at verse 47. When some of them standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus. Verse 48, that was. Now verse 49. The rest said, no, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes. Now, verse 48 is merciful. Verse 48 is somebody doing what most of you would do because you're decent people. You see somebody suffering, you're going to do what you can to alleviate the suffering. A child falls and skins their knees. Which of us are not going to bend down and try to comfort them and try to help them and clean them up and help them find their parents so they can find even more comfort? 
someone is in a car accident, if we have the opportunity and can safely pull over, we're going to pull over to make sure they're okay, call 911, whatever we need to do. That's who we are, right? Jesus on the cross, somebody there hears him crying out in the midst of this and says, well, I'm going to do what I can. And they get this wine vinegar, which was a sour, watered-down sort of wine, the kind that common people would have that was readily available. And it wouldn't provide much relief, but it would be a little, right? A little drink in the midst of this suffering of a man beaten to death and dying on a cross, a wicked, cruel death. But that's just one person of the mix. There was a larger group that you hear recorded in verse 47 and verse 49. In the midst of cataclysmic midday darkness, they're still making fun of Jesus. They're still mocking him. When they say, let's wait to see if Elijah comes. They're not saying that because they're honest about it. They're saying that because they think he's a fraud. They think he's a phony. They don't believe him. Oh, let's see if Elijah would come. Hey, these are the same people that are going, you're the Christ. Get yourself down from there. They're making fun of our Lord. Even now, with these supernatural signs happening, they can't see who he is. And they mock him. How many people do you know? Friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors. That though they are close to the truth of Christ, you're their friend, you're their family member, you're their neighbor, you're their co-worker. You've shared the gospel with them. You try to live a life of uh, a Christ follower in front of them. Yet they continue not only to resist, but to mock your efforts. And not only to resist and mock your efforts, but resist and mock the Holy Spirit himself. There's a cruelness, hardness, a sadness in these saying, he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes. But human nature is the same even today, isn't it? Even today, people behave this way towards The loving, sacrificial death of Jesus. In verse 50, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is the third miracle that happens on the cross here. And here's why it's a miracle. You don't necessarily see it because you and I don't know biblical Greek, but I'm smart enough to read in English people who do know biblical Greek. And here's what all those commentators say. They say that word that's translated gave up his spirit is a word that meaning he chose. It was an act of volition. It wasn't that he died because he couldn't help it anymore because his body was going away. But at that very moment, he made the call that his life on earth was done and he chose to give up his spirit and he died. It's a miracle. None of the rest of us can do that. None of the rest of us can say the exact moment we're going to die. We might try. But that's not our place to inhabit. Jesus, as God set him forward from the beginning of the end, is the arbiter of life and death and the decider of time of who gets to live and how long they get to live and where. God's the ultimate judge, but Jesus is the God of life and death. Even on the cross, he controlled his own death. Keep in mind what he said in John 10, 18. Write that down. John 10, 18. 
He said, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it back up again. He was prophesying what would happen times two, that at this moment he'd give his life up and very soon he'd take it back. Our question here is how would I respond? If I'm in the crowd at the foot of the cross in the midst of the darkness, how would I respond? Would I respond with brokenness and humility? Would I respond with mocking? Or would I respond somewhere in the middle with confusion or despair? With faith, with trust. When you consider Jesus' death on the cross, how would you respond? Here at Southview, we have a unique perspective on the Lord's death because we portray it on this stage right here. Five performances every Palm Sunday weekend, right? And all the rehearsals leading up to it. We see and participate in a microcosm, small way within these walls through our Easter pageant, this day of resurrection, what Jesus' death is like. But it may get to be so rote for us that we're playing a role, that we're reciting our lines, that we forget the significance of what it is. When I was a teenager, I remember going to church with my grandmother, Kirshner, my mom's mom, and my aunts and uncles and cousins at a Lutheran church in Pennsylvania. I was raised Baptist in Texas, right? And that Lutheran church in Pennsylvania observed communion every week. And after a few minutes, you know, reading the little book and not being sure when to stand and sit down, and I mean, you guys have been there, right? If you've been to a liturgical church and which words do we read and which words, when do we skip to another page, you know? I looked around at my cousins, and well, of course, they're kids like me. They're kind of doing their own thing. But I looked at my aunts and uncles, who were my examples, who I loved and respected, and even my dear, sweet grandmother. And while they were reciting these precious words of Christ and about Christ, their faces were blank. And I'll never forget that feeling that I had. I'm 13, 14 years old. I'm barely old enough to have good thoughts like this, right? And I think, oh my gosh, they're talking about Jesus' death and it looks like it means nothing to them. I thought, far be it from me to ever treat the death of my Lord as such a commonplace event. Friends, sometimes we do that. We come to church and we sing the same songs and we don't think about what they mean. We read the same verses and we don't care about what they mean. And these things that mean so much and are so deep and paid the penalty for our sins and bought us abundant and eternal life are seem cheap to us because we aren't thinking with our heart of our own sinfulness and Jesus' great love for us. I want to consider us to consider how we respond. You've got a fourth point on your outline. The heavens had their reaction. The Lord had his cry. The crowd had theirs. And now there's another miracle. 
Another miracle is in verse 51, and that's the curtain's tear to Jesus' death. The curtain's tear to Jesus' death. So at that moment, the very moment when Jesus surrenders his soul, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Now, the part about the earth and the rocks, that was common in the Bible. And peoples from all over the world, anytime there's an earthquake, people that don't know science, and even some that do think, oh, what's going on here? What's the reason for this earthquake? I'm not talking about a seismic reason. I'm talking about is God judging us, right? Or the gods, if they're of some other uh, religion or understanding. Throughout the Bible, there had been earthquakes at major occurrences that God caused the earth to quake. God caused the earth to open up and swallow people. God did these things supernaturally to show his power, to show judgment. And here at this moment, God shows judgment, but he also, through the earthquakes and the rock splitting, but there's also something greater. The temple torn from top to bottom. The temple veil was this huge woven cloth. I mean, gigantic, thicker than any curtain you've imagined. If you imagine not a curtain, but rugs. So it could be 8 to 10 inches, 12 inches thick. And only once a year did one priest, the high priest, go into that holy of holies because that temple curtain separated the court the, uh, the holy place from the holy of holies in which the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And only once a year did the high priest go in. He went in with a rope tied around his belt and a uh, bells on his tassel. So if those on the outside heard that the bells stopped moving, they gave a little tug to see if he was still alive. And if he was dead, they didn't go in to get him. They drug his bones out. Because if you went in that place and you weren't ready, God would kill you dead. It was symbolic of God's presence, God's holiness among his people, that holy of holies. But what happened now? Jesus cries out, giving up his soul. And at that very moment, God himself does what no man can do and rips the temple veil from top to bottom. What does that mean? That's your question. What do you think it means? It means that God himself is saying to everyone who ever hears that story, including you and I right now today, that his holiness, his presence, that was once accessed only by the blood of rams, the blood of lambs, and the blood of all sorts of other sacrifices, and only once a year by one man with special permission, only one time, that his holiness and his presence is now open to all of us at all times. And why is it open? Jesus. Jesus' love, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. Think about what Hebrews 4.16 says. It says to us, let us draw near to God. And why are we supposed to draw near to God? What does Hebrews 4.16 say? If you didn't write that down, write down Hebrews 4.16. It says, with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace. God, who had separated himself from his people because of his holiness, was now opening his way to him and inviting us to come with boldness 
and grace. We've got to move on to a fifth point on your outline. And that's that the graves open because of Jesus' death. Here's another one of these miracles. This is the sixth miracle in this passage of Scripture alone. I mean, this just doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen, but it did. What's it say there in verse 52? The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So you read this and you're like, wait a second. Okay, I can get the resurrection thing, but only certain people and only at a certain time. How does this work? So first of all, if you can believe in the resurrection, why can't you believe in the you know, certain uh, aspects of this resurrection. This was really a resuscitation because these people would die again. But let's look at it. Let's step through phrase by phrase. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. So this wasn't just anybody coming out of the tomb. This was certain people who were full of faith and had believed in God before the time of Jesus. These were Old Testament saints, intertestamental saints, who had a belief that there would be a Messiah, even though they didn't know he was Jesus and didn't know when he was coming. These are the people that God supernaturally busted open the tomb, gave them bodies back. I don't think they were bones walking around around, gave them life back, and they came out of the tomb. But look at the next part. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, to the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, wait a second. Time out, Pastor Aaron. It's like three days. Well, you know, two by our counting, but three by the way the Bible states it because it's on a third different day. So, They're in tombs outside the city because nobody got buried in the city. You just didn't do that. That was not their way. It was, you know, outside. So they're in tombs outside the city. They come out of the tomb. And outside the city, I guess they're just wandering around talking to people, right? Telling them about God's love. Telling them about Jesus. We don't have any record of what they were doing and what they were saying and what went on for those 48 hours or so. But then we do know that after Jesus' resurrection, because... The Bible says he is the firstborn of all from the grave. And he'll be the first to return to the city, Jerusalem, God's holy city. After that, then they came into the city. Then they came in to further testify. That's what that means. It's a new sentence in the Greek. And even though it appears confusing to us, what it means is they were raised, but then they waited on Jesus One miracle followed another miracle. We shouldn't be surprised. But your question there is, how should I understand this? What's the significance? Here's what I would say. This sixth miracle, and these six miracles in total of these short passages of Scripture we've talked about this morning, is God declaring in bold face, all caps, print. There is only one way to salvation, and that is my son Jesus. Sin is carried away in one way, through the atoning death of Jesus. These miracles bear witness to the fact. 
So we have these six miracles and my five points so far, but let's get to our sixth point. Our sixth point is the centurion's proclamation of Jesus' divinity. Just as Pilate had unwittingly pronounced the divinity of Jesus and had it recorded on the sign placed over Jesus on the cross. Just as the Jews, whether they wanted to or not, had pronounced, the Jewish leaders had pronounced the divinity of Jesus. Here again is another proclamation. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were there with him guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and what had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Luke 23, 47 adds that he was a righteous man. It begs the question for us. What is my view of Jesus' divinity and why? Now, for a centurion being a Roman citizen, who we don't know where he came from in the whole Roman Empire, that any time Rome conquered somebody, they would try to bring folks into their army, train them in their ways, indoctrinate them in their ways, and then they had this whole program that, you know, you go through this and you give us this many years, then we're going to give you this amount of land and this amount of stuff when you retire and set you up and you'll be good for life, right? One thing we did know was that almost universally every Roman citizen believed in many gods and didn't have the strict monotheism of Jewish people. So for a centurion to say that he was the son of God is not as big of a jump as a Jewish person saying that. Yet one way or the other, it was still an amazing proclamation, for this man to make. But it begs the question for you and I. What's our view of Jesus' divinity? It's not what does that man 2,000 years ago think about Jesus at that point in time. But what do you sitting right here today believe about Jesus? And why? What are the reasons you believe Jesus is or isn't the Son of God? And do those reasons stand up to scrutiny? Do those reasons stand up to debate and discussion with other people? Are you even willing to debate it or discuss it with other people? Or you're like, no, Jesus isn't God's son and I'm not talking about it. And you're just acting like a kid. You don't know the reason you ain't going to talk about it, but come on. Or maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but you're afraid to talk about it. You don't know how you'd talk about it. And so you keep quiet. We need to know why we believe who Jesus is and be willing to speak about that. We're supposed to have an answer at all times for any who ask. We need to conclude our sermon and our passage of Scripture this morning. And that's our last few verses. Verse 55 and 56. Your last point on your outline is the women who witnessed Jesus' death. If you look at Jesus' life, even through our modern lens of, I wouldn't go so far as to say feminism, because that word can be a little tainted and slanted depending on where you come from. But I can tell you this, there was no one in his day and time, that did more for women than Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reason, again and again, the gospel writers 
record Jesus' interaction with, friendship with, love of, and support from, and with women is because God wanted women to know that they're valuable. And we have this, in the midst of Jesus' death and crucifixion, this inclusion of these two verses. Why? God wanted women to know that they are of utmost importance to His kingdom. Verse 55 says, Many women who were there watching from a distance had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for His needs. Now it's interesting to note that in that day and time, there may not have been many men who were Jesus' followers around the bottom of the cross or at the foot of the cross. Why? They would have been seen as a threat. But based on the Roman culture and the Jewish culture, the women were not seen as significant to those two cultures. But they were seen, they were seen as significant to Jesus and to the gospel writers. That's why they're included. Verse 56, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's son. And we know Mary the mother of Jesus was there as well from other passive scriptures. And why is this included, the women who witnessed Jesus' death? Number one, the point I just made. Women are important. The Bible wants us to know that. That begins to answer my question. Excuse me. What does this show me? Women are important. Extremely important in God's kingdom. There's nothing less worthwhile about a woman. The second thing it shows me is it's pointing to transition of what's to come. Because who the first to witness the resurrected Jesus? Women. Who were the first to report of the resurrected Jesus? Women. And so Matthew, as a gospel writer, includes this for a few reasons. But to lead us from the past in Jesus' life, but to point us to the future in Jesus' life. And to remind us all of the value of women in God's kingdom. Friends, when we look at our passage of Scripture today, in the death of Jesus, we see miracles recorded. We see things that Jesus said recorded. But the most important thing for us today is how do we respond? What is your response? Who do you believe Jesus is? Do you take him at his word and trust him as your savior? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great unity of the Bible That even though we looked at a few verses about the death of Jesus, that those verses intersect with countless other scriptures, just a handful of which I mentioned here today, to show us that you were sovereign in writing your word. And then in your sovereignty, you had a plan to bring redemption to humanity from the very beginning. And it comes to culmination at the cross of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for your sovereignty and we pray for any here today who've never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord, that they would do so even today. And for those of us who may not have treated the cross with contempt, but have become callous or cold, that our hearts would be convicted and we would become burdened again. For our sin, the sin of others. And we would demonstrate our love for you, God, by showing our love for others and inviting them to consider Christ like we have. 
Father, we pray you move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.